It's a joy to be with everyone this morning. Um, if you would, turn in your New Testaments to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll begin there in a moment. Ephesians chapter 1. While you're turning there, I think that we'd all agree that one thing we intensely crave as children of God is confidence, is assurance. And thankfully, God has supplied us with ample confidence and assurance through various measures. There are many things that He's done and many things that He's revealed in detail in His inspired Word that are meant to give us confidence and assurance of salvation and of heaven. But we need to understand where that confidence comes from. The world talks about confidence of salvation through experiences, anecdotal um, stories they share and feelings that they've experienced. And this feeling is too strong to not be true. And I feel like I'm going to make it to heaven. And I know that's the Spirit involved in my life, or I know that's Christ overwhelming me uh, through His power. But we don't see that anywhere in the Old Testament or New Testament. In fact, we, we see several examples of the opposite, of strong feelings and experiences and, and lies being told even that are fully believed that turn out to be false, to bear no evidence at all, hold no water, and therefore the people who follow that and seek confidence in that are completely disappointed and shocked many times. True confidence, really in any field, in any situation, comes from verifiable evidence. I think we'd all agree with that as well. True confidence comes through proof, evidence. Among the spiritual blessings that we read about in Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul gives us one that especially exudes confidence in us. In chapter 1 of Ephesians and verse 13, he says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed you were sealed, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. We especially are impressed with the word that is translated in the New King James Version at least as guarantee. We, that's what we want is a guarantee. But we also are impressed with this concept of a seal, and I think that we're familiar with it. We'll talk about it in a moment. But a seal guarantees, a seal certifies, a seal gives proof and confidence in whatever object is bearing that seal. And so what I want us to consider this morning very briefly is the confidence and the expectation and the assurance that we get through this spiritual blessing that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and He acts as a guarantee of our inheritance, ultimately, of salvation. There are some things, though, we need to understand uh, very briefly, but are pertinent to understanding what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and, and how that gives us confidence and how we can see evidence of our salvation in relationship to God. When talking about the Holy Spirit, it's always important to talk about His nature. And, and what's interesting is that with the Father, that's hardly ever a problem. With the Son... Not so much today, though obviously the Jews rejected Him as God, and, and people today have uh, grappled with this idea of Him being man and deity at the same time. But 
generally speaking, not many even dispute His nature. But it seems like the Holy Spirit is an enigma. And it's because I think, in part, there is the title given Him, the name Holy Spirit, instead of God or Jesus or the Christ, the Son of God. And for some reason that makes people misunderstand it, or older translations, like the King James Version, translating it the Holy Ghost, and that kind of gives us a, something as a challenge. Before we understand what it means to be sealed with the Holy Spirit, we need to understand that He's a divine person. In John chapter 15, or verse chapter 16, rather, when Jesus is promising the apostles this other divine helper, when He leaves, that He will actually be present with them by instrumentality of this divine helper, speaking of the spirit of truth, he uses the pronoun that is masculine, he. He says, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you. He will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me. He will take of what is mine. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of mine and declare it to you. That's all I want us to get from that is that it's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. A person. So you just think very briefly about Christ dwelling in us. I don't think anybody would suggest that Christ literally dwells in the Christian because He is a person. He is one person. That shouldn't be any different with the Holy Spirit. He is a divine person, a part of the divine nature. In Acts 17 and verse 29 the Apostle Paul speaking to the Athenians explains that since God created, we ought not to think of the divine nature as something shaped by art and man's devising. Divine nature there being the Greek word thios, meaning the status of deity. In Romans 1 and in verse 20, he explains to the Gentiles or to the Romans about the Gentiles that they are without excuse. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Here are some of His invisible attributes. His eternal power, and who has eternal power, is one who is of Godhead. Theotis is the the word, and it's the characteristic of deity. In Colossians 2 and verse 9, it explains that we're complete in Christ because in Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's the Greek word theotis. Uh, theotis, and it means the state of being God. And so there's this concept, like we use the term humanity, that describes a nature, that describes a class of existing beings. There is the nature of the divine nature. There is the class of the Godhead. He is one in nature, but three persons. In Genesis chapter 1, Elohim is the word God. It's a plural noun. And we understand it from reading the Gospel of John. In John 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It wasn't just one person. It was one divine nature in three persons. Verse 2 of Genesis 1, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. We see this throughout the New Testament. It's indisputable, though some deny it. In Romans 15 and verse 30, we see the Trinity as it's described from time to time. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When Paul says, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Son, and through the love of the Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, the Father. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Holy Spirit is a person of the Godhead. And therefore, we need to understand and be impressed by the fact that He's intelligent. 
a lot of people in talking about the Holy Spirit talk about Him as someone who is ambiguous, someone who speaks to us in ways that are unexplainable, and He speaks in a language that is unexplainable. That's why people talking in tongues today don't really understand that speaking in tongues was actually a language that was understandable. It wasn't gibberish. And so we, we often tend to think about the Holy Spirit through the influence of the world as a thing that is unexplainable, some unexplainable force, and therefore comes with it the, the thoughts of having feelings by the Holy Spirit. But He is an intelligent being just like the Father and the Son. We see that throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 11, He knows the mind of God and therefore He teaches us the mind of God. He conveys the thoughts with spiritual words. In 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, speaking of spiritual gifts, it shows that He has a will where He determines based on His will, His, His thoughts about the matter, who to give what spiritual gift to. He gives to each individually as He wills. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, it speaks about an apostasy. The Spirit expressly speaks about and expressly brings to us this concept of precision and distinction and clarity. He's intelligent and He knows how to communicate. In chapter 15 of John and verse 26, along with the apostles and through them, He would testify of Jesus In Acts 16 and verse 6, Paul and his travel companions were determined to go preach the gospel in a place that the Spirit at that time forbade them to go preach. He forbids. He's an intelligent being with that kind of authority. So with that nature of the Holy Spirit comes a greater understanding of His work. It's not mystical. It's not ambiguous. It's not something we can't identify and can't explain. But very clearly it is revealed in the Word of God. Just consider there, in the very context of Ephesians, what the work of the Holy Spirit is. In chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks about his stewardship, translated in the New King James Version as dispensation. But he's speaking about his stewardship of that administration of God's will. How that by revelation, verse 3, God made known to him the mystery, which he has briefly written already, and which we can understand when we read. Notice verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to His holy apostles and prophets. And so what the Spirit does as a divine person is reveal the mind of God as we just looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He reveals that mystery and no longer is it a mystery. Notice the connection of that in chapter 2 when he spoke about the inclusion of the Gentiles in this promise and the fact that the Jews and Gentiles are now one new man in Christ. He speaks about how they're no longer strangers and foreigners. They're members of the household of God. They're built on that foundation of the apostles and prophets. Remember we read that in chapter 3. He made it known and revealed it through the holy apostles and prophets Notice verse 21, in whom the whole body or the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built up together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now someone may say, what does that mean? God dwells in us through the Spirit. Well, if we see in chapter 3 what the Spirit does, we can understand how God dwells in us through the Spirit, through what He has revealed to be God's Word. And based on that, we are built on the foundation of the holy apostles and prophets. His work is in revelation of God's will. And along those lines, His work is in further 
building us up and securing our salvation through the Word that He revealed. Now, we're not saying that the Holy Spirit and the Word are the same thing, but they are inseparable. The Word is the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit's purpose, according to the will of the Father, is to reveal His will. And we see that throughout Ephesians as well. Notice there in chapter 3, especially in verse 16, Paul prays that they would be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may may be able to comprehend the dimensions of, of God's love, essentially. But he prays that they would be strengthened with might through the Spirit. But that's synonymous with what he says in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. As you're strengthened with might through the Spirit, Christ dwells in your hearts. Now we understand how that works, through faith. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 2 and verse 20 says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Christ doesn't literally dwell in us. He dwells in us through faith in the Word of God. And it's the same way the Spirit dwells in us. In Romans, the 8th chapter, in verse 9, notice the synonyms used between the Spirit of God and Christ. He says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of Christ are spoken of in synonymous terms. And so we're strengthened through the Spirit, through the Word of God. We are allowing Christ to live in us as we submit to the Spirit's revelation. Understand that as we get to chapter 5 and verse 17. He says, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And how we would do that is not being drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but notice, be filled with the Spirit. Now, specifically, the way we'd be filled with the Spirit in verse 19 is speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. A parallel book and passage to this in Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When he says, Let the Spirit dwell in you in singing these songs, he's saying it's going to be by the word of Christ dwelling in you. The way we would understand the will of the Lord is having the Spirit dwell in us through the word of Christ. This is His work, and we cannot separate it from the Word of God. Remember in the 6th chapter of Ephesians, when he speaks about this spiritual warfare that we're involved in, we're wrestling against not flesh and blood, but principalities and power, so on and so forth. He tells them to put on the whole armor of God, and among that is in verse 17, the sword of the Spirit. And he's very clear with this, the sword of the Spirit, the instrument of the Spirit's working is the Word of God. Ephesians 6. 17. We can't separate the Spirit from the Word of God. So when we go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians and verse 13, and it says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, we begin to understand at least to a degree how that might work through the Word of God. But first I want to consider what it means to be sealed. The word seal is from the Greek word sphragis. The noun there in uh, other texts here in verse 13, it's the verb, we'll see it. It is the instrument used for sealing or stamping, a signet, like a signet ring a king would have. And then the substance, sometimes wax, which bears the imprint of that signet 
and seals a document and the impression itself made by the signet. And so you want something to be verified as from the king. This law is going to be ratified because it bears the signet of the king, the seal. It's authenticated, it's attested and confirmed and, and certified by that imprint. So that's what we're talking about when he says you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We bear the imprint of the Holy Spirit. We bear the certification and the authenticity that comes from the Holy Spirit. What exactly does that look like though? Consider the use of sragis in Romans chapter 4 in verse 11. We don't have time to spend a lot of time in the context. But you might remember the context of Romans 4 stressing that Abraham was justified by faith before he was circumcised to show the Jews that you don't have to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised to be justified. We're under this new law in Christ. Well, it says in Romans 4 and verse 11 that he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith he had while still uncircumcised. The context begins with a quotation of Genesis 15, 6 that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That is quoting from Genesis chapter 15. And he received circumcision in Genesis 17, well after. But in Genesis 15, it says by faith, he was given righteousness. He was accounted as righteous. Now to confirm that, to certify that, he was commanded to be circumcised. It was a sign of the covenant. You have a covenant with God and here's how you know the circumcision is the sign of that covenant. But if I have a covenant with God, then I can be sure and confident that I'm right with Him. I'm righteous before Him. He said it back here, Abraham, and by circumcision, you have a seal of that righteousness. You can know for sure based on God's promises. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul is speaking about foregoing his right to receive support so that he wouldn't hinder the gospel. And he's stressing he has that right because he's an apostle. But he says, if I'm not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship. In what way were the Corinthians the seal, the certification, the authenticity, the attestation of his apostleship? Well, he came among them and laid the foundation of Christ. And the reason they believed him is because he bore the signs of an apostle. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. He, he performed miracles among them. In 1 Corinthians 2, he said he came with the, the power of, of God, not in, in uh, man's wisdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7, he imparted spiritual gifts to them. They came short in no gift. And so as they see the, the signs of an apostle, the fact that he had miracles and he laid hands on them and gave them those gifts of the Spirit enumerated in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, you know I'm an apostle. It's been certified to you. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 19, the word seal is used. That the solid foundation of God stands having this seal, this certification, authentication. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And you notice in that context, it's not just that the Lord knows those who are His, that's a seal, but we can know who the Lord knows are His. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. There are some who are teaching the resurrection is already past and they've strayed from the truth. But you be diligent in the Word of God and make yourself a vessel of honor, cleansing yourself from the latter. And so the Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of Christ there in that same verse depart from iniquity. You can have the certification that you are the Lord's through those means. The verb is fragizo, sealed. 
And that's the actual marking with the seal, the action of it, and the action of certifying something. In John chapter 3 and verse 33, John is speaking about how he's got to decrease so Jesus can increase. And he says that everyone uh, rejects him, but those who don't certify that God is true because they accept Jesus is the Son of God, they certify that God's Word is true. In chapter 6 and verse 27, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and He's telling them, you're laboring for food which perishes, but I can give you the food which endures to everlasting life. He says, God has set His seal on me. He is certified through the prophecies, through the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove and John the Baptist pointing me out, and through the miracles I'm performing and had just performed before you, He has certified that I have that gift of spiritual food enduring to everlasting life. So when we're speaking of being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, we're speaking about being certified as something by the impression of the Holy Spirit. So consider there in that very context that we are identified and authenticated as God's Son by the Holy Spirit. In verse 13, it says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But notice the context. He says, you also. And what it does is it looks back to verse 11, which speaks about that very concept of the Holy Spirit being the Holy Spirit of promise. When he says, in you, in Him you, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. A blessing in Christ is an inheritance. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit in verse 13. You also were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. But that inheritance looks all the way back to verse 5. We were predestined, as a, uh, He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. He uses the same language. Predestined in verse 5, predestined in verse 11, to sons of God by adoption to an inheritance. Because sons receive an inheritance, no one else. Sons of a father receive His inheritance. But how were we sealed with that Holy Spirit? Notice he says in verse 13, After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed. It has to do with the word of God and our response to it. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed with that promise of the inheritance. In other words, you are certified as a son of God to receive the inheritance because you believe the gospel of your salvation. The Scripture is laden with this proof of our sonship. It's not about a feeling, it's about verifiable evidence. Something we have done in response to the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And that's how we bear His imprint. That's how we're sealed with Him. Notice in Romans the 8th chapter, in Romans chapter 8, speaking about not being under condemnation in Christ any longer, about walking according to the Spirit, not the flesh. He says in verse 12 of Romans 8, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to live uh, to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Why are we not indebted? Because if you live according to the flesh, you die. If you live according to the Spirit, you live. Now notice verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of bondage again to fear as you were under the the bondage of sin and death, but you received the spirit of adoption, this disposition of adoption. And, And 
sons, even by adoption, cry out, Abba, Father. They cry out to their father out of love and for help. And the reason we can do that is because we know we're sons. We bear that disposition. But notice, verse 16, how we can be confident in this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit reveals God's will. And as we submit our spirit to His teaching, what the Spirit says we must do to be sons of God, and us doing what it says to be sons of God, that certifies that we are God's children. It's very simple. God says, do this and you'll become my child. We do this and the Spirit's teaching and our submission of Spirit to Him verifies that we are children of God. But notice something else there in Romans 8, in verse 17. He says, if you're children, then you're heirs. There's that inheritance. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But notice this, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. So if you submit to the Spirit's teaching, then you are shown to be, certified to be sons of God. But he continues to say, if indeed, we are heirs, if indeed. That's the Greek word um, there in the text, iper. And it means if perhaps or provided that. It's another condition. You are heirs, sons of God, if indeed we suffer with Him. I want to tell you that another imprint of the Spirit that certifies our sonship before God and therefore our hope of heaven is suffering for doing good. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the whole epistle is about suffering for righteousness sake. So he says, don't think it's strange as some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice because you partake in Christ's suffering. But he demonstrates throughout the text that you don't partake in Christ's suffering just because you suffered, but because you suffered for the will of Christ. So he says in verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, you're suffering for doing His will, not just suffering in general. Blessed are you for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. What does that mean? You know, some may think that it's some mystical, unexplainable thing that I know He's resting upon me and, and so I'm confident in that. That's not what it means. If you have suffered for doing the will of God, that is submitting to the Spirit's teaching, that's why you're suffering. You can rejoice and you can be okay with that. Because you know you're suffering for doing the will of God. That's all that means. Because you have submitted to the Spirit's teaching, you know you have God's approval. You are certified as a child of God who is obedient. And just like they killed Christ and He was raised from the dead, you can be sure that you'll receive a blessing as well. There's a certification of the Spirit. You know, also though, overwhelmingly, the certification of the Spirit is through our renewal in Titus chapter 3, a parallel passage to John chapter 3 and verse 5. In verse 5, he says that not by works of righteousness which we have done are we saved, but according to His mercy He saved us. Notice, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. In John 3 and verse 5, Jesus said, you must be born of water in the Spirit. This idea of regeneration and renewing is rebirth, new birth. And so the washing of regeneration is synonymous with born of water. The renewing of the Holy Spirit is synonymous with being born of the Spirit. But notice that, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is something which continues day by day. And it confirms that we are right with God. In Ephesians 4 and verse 23, or rather in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 16, 
the Apostle Paul says, our outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. That renewal of the Holy Spirit, it happens at baptism, but it's a constant renewal as we submit to the Spirit's teaching. Notice that in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, he's speaking about how we should no longer walk like we were as the Gentiles, but instead he says we need to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Verse 23 of Ephesians chapter 4. And that's through learning Christ, verse 20. But I want us to notice in verse 25, he starts to get even more practical with that. Therefore, put away lying. Speak truth with your neighbor. This is part of putting away the old man, being renewed in the spirit of our mind, and therefore putting on the new man. And notice what it equates to in verse 30 in the negative. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. You are sealed in obedience to the gospel. You were shown and certified to be a child of God. You continue to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put off that old man. Put on this new man. If you don't, you grieve the Holy Spirit. He sealed you for the day of redemption. And you grieve Him by refusing that seal, essentially. You grieve Him by refusing to be identified as God's child, as one in submission to the Spirit. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit when we submit to His will and allow that to transform us completely. Allow that to change us. You you can't say you're a child of God if you're not living like Jesus, essentially. If you're not submitting to God. That's what it's saying. As long as you're submitting to the Spirit's teaching, you can be sure that you're a certified child of God. That's authentic. It's not fake like a lot of people in the world today. It's authentic and it's provable by submission to the Word. You know, this is what the fruit of the Spirit does for us in part. In Galatians chapter 5, he speaks about adding the fruit of the Spirit to our lives. And we remember especially after that list, he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. If you're living according to the will of God, if you're in submission to God as His child, if that's your claim, it will show by walking according to the fruit of the Spirit. Someone says, I'm a faithful child of God. Well, you can't verify that simply by sitting in the pew. You verify that by a transformed life, living according to the will of God. To be sealed with the Holy Spirit is to be identified and authenticated as a child of God through obedience to and adherence to and thus transformation by the Spirit-revealed Word of God. But you know, along with this seal of the Spirit, he adds that He, the Spirit, is a guarantee of our inheritance. If you're sealed with the Spirit, it's a certification that you are a son of God and therefore a guarantee that you will receive that inheritance because it, it's, it's due you by the promise of God. The word guarantee is the Greek word archabon, and it means a pledge, Strong defines, a part of the purchase money or property given in advance as security for the rest. One of the reasons why being sealed with the Holy Spirit acts as a guarantee of the Holy Spirit is because notice in verse 13, He's called the Holy Spirit of promise. And when God makes a promise, it's as good as gold. In Titus 1 and verse 2, for example, Paul speaks of the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. We remember in Hebrews chapter 6, the Hebrew writer encouraged the brethren to press on to a full assurance of hope. And he gave Abraham as an example of 
having endured obtaining the promise, and he explains how there's a guarantee when God promises. You may not have even received that promise yet, but the promise itself acts as a guarantee because of the immutability of God's counsel. He cannot lie. And so we can have strong consolation. But along with this idea of being sealed with the Holy Spirit, bearing His mark, is the fact that He acts as a guarantee, a down payment. We've already received something is what that means. So we can expect the rest as a guarantee in the future is that transformation by the Gospel, by the Spirit's revelation. I want us to notice there in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in defense of his apostleship, sure, but the Apostle Paul speaking about something that verifies him as a child of God, not these false apostles, but him and his companions that also verifies the Corinthians as children of God, if it's true. He says in verse 23, I call God as my, or rather verse 21, He who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us as God and has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That's a down payment, which means you can already see something, which means something else, the redemption of our bodies is coming. In chapter 3, he says in verse 18, as one who is preaching the gospel, like Moses was revealing the law, but his glory is greater, that is, as an apostle, he says, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same glory, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's that guarantee. You can know that I'm a true apostle, and you can know that I'm a true child of God, in contrast to these phonies of the false apostles, because I am actually living and being transformed by the gospel I'm preaching. And you can contrast that with the behavior of the false apostles in chapter 11. And so he's being transformed from glory to glory. And... Chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6, he shows that this relates to you as well. He's appealing to every man's conscience in the sight of God. He's wanting to shine the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ on them. Why? So they can be transformed to, from glory to glory as well. This is why in this same chapter, he says in verse 12, Death is working in us, but life in you. When we preach to you the gospel, you're being changed. And that's part of that down payment. Since we have the same Spirit according to faith, what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we believe and therefore speak, knowing that He who raised up the Lord will also raise us up with you. You have this transformation which verifies the future resurrection. This is where He says, our outward man may be perishing, but our inward man is being renewed. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What is that? That's the resurrected body but it's working toward that, the inward renewal by the gospel of Christ. When I'm being transformed as a Christian, you may not see something different on my body other than a negative. But because I'm being transformed inwardly, I know that I will have that glorious body in the resurrection. This is exactly what Paul goes on to say. And I want us to connect what he said in chapter 1 and verse 22. He's given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee with what he says here in chapter 5. He speaks about this tent being destroyed, but we have a building from God. Eternal in the heavens, something made without hands. We earnestly desire to be clothed with that habitation. We who are in this tent grown, verse 4, being burdened. Not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. He's talking about that resurrection body. Notice verse 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, 
who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That looks back to chapter 1 and verse 22 and everything in between about His transformation. I can know that in the end I will be raised to a glorious, incorruptible body that does not fade away. There will be no sorrow, no pain, no anguish, no tears. I know I'm going to heaven, Paul is saying. And it's not by anything I have merited. It's because God has given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Now what does that mean? He has revealed His will that has the power to salvation. The power to mold me into the image of Christ. And as I bear that image of the Son of God, verified through my good works that God prepared beforehand that I should walk in, Ephesians 2 and verse 10, I know that I will be raised to eternal life. I will be raised to that incorruptible, glorious body. Which is why there in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, he says he's the guarantee of our inheritance until what? Till the reception of it. But what is it? The redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. He's using the same language in Romans chapter 8. He's speaking of the redemption of our body. He explains in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. But how do I know He will transform my lower body to be conformed to His glorious body? Because I'm living like I'm a citizen of heaven, not earth. I can be sure of that. It's a guarantee. Because I've already received some of the payment. I'm a different man. I'm completely changed. I'm living like the Son of God. If He can transform my degraded spirit having rebelled against God, and He can take the sin away, and He can break the old habits, He can completely change me to bear the image of Christ to be a participant in the divine nature, I know He can raise my body to be incorruptible. I know He can do that. You see that? Our confidence doesn't come through a feeling. Our confidence doesn't come through a guess. Our confidence doesn't come through anecdotal experiences we can share with each other. Our confidence comes through our submission to the Word of God and being changed into a completely different person by it. Brethren, we're called to live like Christ. And if we're living like Christ, we can know that we're going to be with Him for eternity. And we shall be as He is even now in heaven. And so we can have confidence and thank God for that. We crave it, but this is how we get it, brethren. If you would please bow with me and we'll be released to our classes. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this day you've blessed us with, a day we can gather with those of like precious faith and study your word and worship you in spirit and in truth and, and be edified and glorify you. We know this is a foretaste of the eternity in heaven and we're so thankful for sharing it with us so that we can have something great to look forward to. We pray that you would be with us as we dismiss to our classes. Help us to focus on your will. Be with the teachers as they break unto everyone the bread of life. We pray that you would be with all of us as students of your word, that we would receive it with honesty of heart and change our lives accordingly. We thank you for your son and his sacrifice for our sins and the hope we have in him. And it's in his name we pray.